Dear God, I pray that you'd satisfy us as we receive from your word food for our souls, light for our paths, transformation for our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, when we lived in the city of Eugene, Oregon, where the ducks play, we heard a rumor that the mayor of Eugene was in our neighborhood. I mean, like, lived in our neighborhood. Wow! The mayor living in our neighborhood wasn't exactly totally upscale. It was just a nice neighborhood. The mayor lived in our neighborhood. So I did what any proper dad would do on Halloween. I had kids age 10, 6, and 2, and we made the rounds in our neighborhood, and they made sure we found the mayor's house. And lo and behold, the mayor gave my kids king-size candy bars. All around the neighborhood, my kids were getting the fun size, which is about the size of a nickel. And then the mayor's house, he gave king-size candy bars. Wow, it was so cool to have the mayor of Eugene, Oregon, where the ducks play, in the neighborhood where I lived. That was just amazing. When we were done trick-or-treating that night, the kids were counting and trading candy, as they always did, and they noticed our oldest came up a bit short. So again, I did what any self-respecting father would do. I recostumed my son, and I took him back to the mayor's house. <laughs> it was a little bit late at night, so he probably was looking at his supply and wanting to get rid of a few things. My son got five king-size candy bars from the mayor who lived in my neighborhood. Okay, so this is where I want to go with that. There was a, a period of time in human history where God paid us a visit. A modern paraphrase of a Bible verse, well, actually in the Gospel of John, says that Jesus moved into our neighborhood. That's not literal. That's a modern paraphrase. Jesus moved into our neighborhood. Wow, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, in our neighborhood, that is way better than the mayor. Even with all the technical, technological, technological advancements, if I could actually say the word, even with the advancements of technology, communication, I have found, is, is challenged. With all the information that's out there, how do you know what to believe? And with, the, with all the, the misinformation that's out there, wouldn't it be nice if God could just come here and explain it to us? Here's who I am. Here's who you are. Here's how to bridge the gap. Well, he did that when Jesus moved into our neighborhood. And we have that recorded for us in the Gospel of John. Today I begin a new series uh, with you on Sunday mornings. I want to take you through the Gospel of John. Not every single word, not every single sentence, but we will dive deep into the Gospel of John and spend, I think, a couple of years in this passage, or in this book. You may have heard at the end of the reading, chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, 
has made him known. That little phrase, made him known, if you're reading along, perhaps in the New American Standard Bible, it says, has explained God. So that's what Jesus did when he moved into our neighborhood. He did so in part with the intention of explaining God the Father to us. That is by far the best communication that we can possibly hope to have in terms of who God is, who we are, and how we are to have a right relationship with Him. So today is a new preaching series, and what I've done is I've looked at uh, John chapter 1, and I've, I've actually broken it down into three Sundays. So these are the next three Sundays. Today, you will meet Jesus in the Gospel of John. Next Sunday, you will meet John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. The Sunday after that, you will meet the disciples of Christ in the Gospel of John. So narrowing that down from those three Sundays down to this Sunday, we're meeting Jesus in the Gospel of John. There are three things I want you to see that John writes about in this first chapter. Jesus is God. Jesus is Creator. Jesus is Savior. Now, John's aim in writing his gospel, and, and we'll look at this on another day where he gives it to us very clearly in, in one Bible verse, is, is to present Jesus Christ as the most unique person that has ever lived in human history. There is no one like Jesus, not yesterday, not today, not tomorrow, not even close. Nobody is like Jesus. My aim with you this morning is going to be more narrow than what John had in terms of a purpose for the entirety of the gospel. My aim with you this morning, I can give it to you in a sentence. This is my sermon in a sentence. The uniqueness of Jesus Christ has produced the uniqueness of Christianity. When we are done this morning, you will be equipped to stand apart from every cult in America and every world religion that departs from historical biblical Christianity because every cult and every world religion departs here on the person of Jesus Christ. You don't have to study all the other religions that are out there and, all, and, and the vast myriad of opinions, but you do need to know Jesus Christ. And if you know him and know him as he is described in Scripture, you will recognize what is false when it is presented to you. The uniqueness of Jesus Christ has produced the uniqueness of Christianity. And here's why. Number one, Jesus is God. Jesus is the only human being in the history of humanity who was fully God and fully man. The first two words in John's gospel, it comes across as three words in our English Bibles. It says, in the beginning. That is designed to make you think of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So you, you hear this, and if you like things in the original language, it's NRK. In the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that was actually written in Hebrew, but it came across in the Greek with the very same two words, NRK. And so as we read in the beginning, our minds are trained to think of, well, he's going to be talking about God because everybody knows Genesis 1, chapter 1, or chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was God, and then we read it this way. In the beginning was 
the Word. And we go on to find out a little bit later that he's talking about Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. That is one way that John alerts us to the fact that Jesus was God. And then he just flats out say, flat out says it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I think another reason why John starts off this way, and there are layers of complexity in the gospel, by the way. I won't give this we can't dive into every layer, but here's an important one that I think is often overmissed, so I'll bring it out to you. John begins with these words that are so well acquainted with the written scripture of his day in the beginning because he wants his audience to know, and by extension, he wants you to know that this is not his opinion. He's not writing a blog. He's not sending a lengthy text. This is not a post on social media. John wants you to know that he knows he is writing scripture. The reason we should pay attention to John chapter 1 and what it says about Jesus Christ is because it's not a blog. It is scripture. Holy Spirit inspired scripture. And so I would say to you that a good approach to the gospel of John is just to recognize this is the word of God. Read it, reread it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it. Read it with another person and discuss what you find. Prioritize it, learn it, live it, love it. It is the word of God, not a blog, not a social media post, the very word of God. And John has a lot to say that helps us to understand Jesus Christ. Perhaps another reason why he begins with this phrase in the beginning is to draw our attention to a time when God existed and people did not. And in this time before the world began, John identifies Jesus Christ as the Word. He was with God in the beginning. He was God in the beginning. Jesus existed before time began. Well, that tells us right away that Jesus did not get his start in Bethlehem. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. So right now what John is talking about in just the first couple of verses is, is uh, the first two members of the, of the Trinity. He's telling us that God the Father is eternal and that God the Son is eternal. Now, I want to be quick to add that John is Trinitarian. We get some of the best revelation regarding the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. But that's not until John chapter 14 and 16. Right here, he's dealing with God the Father, who is eternal. He's dealing with God the Son, who is also eternal. Jesus was with God in that he was distinct. And he was God in that he is, he is, he is divine. He's eternal. Both equal and distinct. So we can easily conclude from this information that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, but the Father is God, and the Son is God. Now, as we get into it later on in the Gospel of John, I'll, I'll, I'll bring in the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, and we'll, um, we'll make sure we understand the Trinity. But right here in front of us, John chapter 1, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Father and the Son, equal and distinct. 
Not getting a start in Bethlehem, Jesus is eternally the Son of God. Or you could say, God the Son. Now, here's what happened when Jesus came here. He added to his deity. He did not subtract his deity, but he added humanity to his deity. The theological terms that are... The, yeah, I don't... Next slide. I don't think this uh, is working. The theological term that we sometimes use is hypostatic union. And that's the union of the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus Christ. Where we get that term is the, the Greek word that we render hypostatic in terms of the hypostatic union. The Greek word is hypostasis. And it means nature or substance. And so we say hypostatic union. The union of the divine nature and the human nature. Jesus did not leave his Godhead, his God nature behind when he was living here. He added to it another nature, a human nature, so that we would say correctly, according to Scripture, Jesus was fully God and fully man. Now, I want to be quick to explain, this is not a mix like 50-50, 60-40, 70-30, not a little bit of some and just as much, if not more, than of the other. Fully God, fully man, the most unique person in human history, Jesus Christ. The doctrine of hypostatic union, I set before you and I tell you that it is good because it is biblical. We don't have that as a phrase in Scripture, hypostatic union, but it is based upon the clear teachings of Scripture. When the two natures of Jesus Christ are present, then you can understand how it is that complex things occurred, such as the eternal Son of God died. Wow. You need a human nature and a God nature in order to describe that. This can be complicated, so let's run through this a couple, uh, just a bit more. Two natures have contradictory attributes. For example, as God, Jesus was, is infinite in knowledge, power, and presence. He knows all things. He can do all things in his will. He can be everywhere. As a man, there were some things that Jesus did not know. And he could not do all things. He could not sin, for instance. He, could not, or he was also not present everywhere. In order to be born a baby, the eternal God the Son needs a human body, a human nature. And so hypostatic union is the nature of deity, the nature of humanity, put together at the same time. Not mixed together, and you have a little bit less of both, Fully God, fully man. Jesus has to be God if it is to be God who initiates the act of salvation. Otherwise, we have yet another religion of people trying to make their way into God's good grace or God's, God's pleasure. Now, if you understand just that portion of what I've said so far, I think we're 10, 15 minutes in. If you can understand John chapter 1 and just this, 
So not even in, including the complexity of the Trinity. Just God the Father, God the Son, Jesus eternally God, and yet he added humanity. If you understand even just that, you can stand apart from every cult in America and every world religion that makes you a different offer. Parents, your kids need to know Jesus Christ. That is by far the best equipping that they can possibly have to recognize something that is not genuine, something that is not biblical. I was at a memorial some number of years ago. In fact, it was at camp. We weren't even, didn't even have this building yet. And someone approached me because they were upset, wanting to know. I, I didn't even know how this conversation started. But somewhere in the middle of the conversation, um, some, uh, a parent wanted to know why the church did not do more or do better at warning young people about cults. You know, we, we can do more, and I would like to do more around here. But by and large, if you want to protect yourself and even equip your kids to stand strong against not just the culture, but the cults that are present in our culture, oh, let them get to know Jesus Christ and be very clear as to who Jesus Christ is. Every single deviant group departs here. Yes, they have Jesus in their system, but not the Jesus in, their Bible, in the Bible. Fully God, fully man. The most unique person in human history. The uniqueness of Jesus Christ has produced the uniqueness of Christianity. Number two, Jesus is creator. So I see it in verse three. Through him, speaking of the word, speaking of Jesus Christ, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And I'll just read to you as I flip open my Bible to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul uh, takes what he knows about Jesus Christ and he gives it to the church in Colossae this way. He says this, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. I take it that Paul had read the Gospel of John. Or at least he's in agreement with it. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now we also happen to know in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 that the Holy Spirit was involved in the created work. There is some sense in which everything which the Father does, the Son and the Spirit also do. They are always in perfect agreement at every moment, and they are always equal in deity. Knowing that Jesus Christ has all the attributes of deity ought to help you to understand that Jesus Christ created, because that's what God does. So one of the things that, that uh, the Apostle John is telling us here is that God, the creator of the universe, has chosen to make himself known. And he's done so in a very personal and a very humble way. The God who lives in glory and majesty freely chose to take up residence in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. 
Well, another theological term is the term incarnation. And that word does not appear in the Bible, but it is most clearly taught in the Bible. Incarnation is a, a Latin word. I don't like to throw a lot of words around at you because I think you can read the English Bible and get a whole lot out of it. I don't want to intimidate you. Read the English Bible. Uh, incarnation is from the Latin, which simply means in and flesh. In plus flesh. And so the way we would say it with regard to Jesus is that he's God in the flesh. God in the flesh. And look at verse 14 of John chapter 1. The word became flesh and made his, made his dwelling among us. And we, we, we are clearly able to understand, if you didn't get it by now, you get it in verse 14, that the word that John speaks about in, verses, or in verse 1 that's the word that became flesh. Well, who else fits that description? Who else is God and who else made all things in the beginning? Who else could that be who became flesh, became a human person and lived here for a while? That would be Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, that, that word made his dwelling among us. Dwelling is, is the word for tabernacle. And this is where that modern paraphrase I talked to you about uh, earlier, when I opened, it uh, says that Jesus moved into our neighborhood. That's just a, a colloquial way of saying it. He tabernacled amongst us. His presence was here. The presence of God was here in the person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Every religious leader or every religious system that departs from the Bible departs here even with Jesus in their thinking and their teaching, they get it wrong with regard to Jesus. And the, the, uh, the uniqueness of Christianity is 100% driven by the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Here's why this is so important. You cannot reject Jesus and receive what Jesus offers at the same time. So that brings me to my third point, Jesus is Savior. Let's see how John says it, and we're going to repeat, I'm going to repeat that lesson in just a moment. Let's read chapter uh, 1, verse 12. This is from uh, the Apostle John. Yet to all who received him, still talking about Jesus, yet to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. In order to receive salvation from Jesus, you must receive Jesus. There is no other way. You cannot reject Jesus and receive the salvation that he offers. This scripture does not say in verse 12, to those who rejected Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God because they were sincere in their faith. If you are interested in the salvation that Jesus receives, he will freely give it to you when you receive him. John uses the... Um, the word believe in verse 12. Receive and believe. 
And what he's doing, I think, is to prepare you for the entirety of his gospel. You, are, you will encounter the word believe right around 90 times in the gospel of John. And you will come to realize that there will always be a response to Jesus. Believe or reject. There is no middle ground. Jesus does not offer middle ground. And so John does not present a neutral response to Jesus in his gospel. Belief, let's make sure we understand this, belief is not simple agreement with Jesus. Belief is not a positive feeling about Jesus. Belief is not having heard about Jesus and then even liking what you hear about Jesus. There will be plenty of times when we encounter belief in the Gospel of John, so I'm not going to delve into something that's recorded multiple times later on in the Gospel. I will just give it to you this way. Belief in the New Testament, and specifically in the Gospel of John, is active trust. There's really nothing passive about it. Belief is trust, and it's active trust. Trust that is demonstrated in action. Okay, so here's a modern-day example of belief and trust and how those two are different than each other. I believe in parachutes, but I don't trust them. Never have, never will. I have an issue with heights. I don't, I don't like heights. Terrified of heights, quite frankly. Um, I think humans were made to be on the ground I'm most comfortable on the ground. I don't like anything up high. I don't even like looking at things that are high. This is very amusing to my family when we are in a movie theater and some scene suddenly uh, breaks onto the big screen where there's a dude up high or he's in, looking like he's in peril because he's on the edge of a cliff or even looking down through, uh, from the viewpoint of a skyscraper. Looking, I don't like any of that. I will never, ever get into a plane with the intention of entrusting my life to a parachute. It will not happen. Now, I don't disbelieve parachutes. I am a believer in parachutes. I'm not an atheist when it comes to parachutes. I will readily say the parachute exists, and it seems like it's great for other people, but I will never, ever, not even one time, it won't even be a temptation, I will never entrust my life to a parachute. Now, right now, probably three of you are thinking, hey, a great, great gift card to give him for Christmas or his birthday is parachute. Fine, I'll take it. I'll just re-gift it. But I will never use that. There is a difference between belief and trust. Do you get what I'm saying? To believe in something, New Testament-wise, is to trust that person. When Jesus says believe, when John says believe in Jesus, he's not thinking the dichotomy that we have. He's thinking trust, all out, reckless, abandon, place your trust in the person of Jesus Christ. So here's the relevance of hypostatic union and incarnation. And this is what we have covered in John chapter 1. Technical terms such as hypostatic union and incarnation 
you might prefer that I not use. But recognize this. Those biblical truths teach you that God is for you. He is for you. Every minute of every day. There has never been a time when God has not been for you. Only the gospel story will tell you this. The reason Jesus left the glory and the majesty of heaven and joined a human nature to his divine nature is that he is for you. Jesus is eternally for you. Now, you can either believe that or you can reject that. You cannot ignore that. Jesus, in all his uniqueness, is the head of the church. Some of what that means is there's no getting into the church except through Jesus. Another aspect of what that means is if you want the life that Jesus offers to you, if you want the life that you see other people in the church enjoying, you're going to need to deal with Jesus. The uniqueness of Jesus has produced the uniqueness of Christianity. Where do you stand with Jesus? Let's pray. Dear God, as we enter into a few moments of prayer, I pray that you would do what I've read in the Psalms that you can do. Search our hearts and see if there be any wayward aspect within us. We don't like being confronted by people. And in some ways, we like it even less when we are confronted in Scripture. And yet, the person of Jesus Christ, just simply who he is and the claims that he made, confront us. Will we believe or will we reject? Those issues are hard. How we respond to Jesus is not easy. Some of us have lived a very long life on the outside, and we like it. Others of us have tried to do a dance inside the church, and we like that too. It's just plain easy, or excuse me, it's just plain hard to let go. Reckless abandon, all in, trust. Help us to do that. As we approach the table this morning, 
Lord, we want to be right with you and right with people. And so in the quietness of this holy moment, I would simply ask that you would enable us to respond to you. If there be any sin in our lives, we ask for cleansing. Some of us need to renounce sin that has been in our life for far too long. And perhaps a few of us need to come to Jesus Christ today to receive what he has always wanted to give, the gift of salvation. Help us to do that, to respond to you in a way that we know is pleasing to you and not just pleasing to ourselves or the person that we came with. As we think about whether or not we are right with people, dear God, some people that we are not right with are not even in this room. Perhaps there's not much we can do. But we can be, we can do some admitting before you that we have not been the person you've called us to in a particular relationship. We have left things undone. We have left some other things unsaid. We have been wrong and we are sorry for that. Grant us the divine enablement we need to represent Jesus Christ, not only to a watching world, but to our family and our friends, our kids, our parents, our husbands, our wives. All that we do, all that we say, we're asking for a godly response so that people around us will know that you live. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, just before we uh, approach the table this morning, I have a few more words for you. I mentioned the Apostle Paul a few moments ago. He was a leader in the early church. He wrote a number of letters to those churches. I alluded to one that I called Colossians. Here's one, um, the first of two that we have in Scripture, and this would be called 1 Corinthians. First, back to that story about the mayor in our neighborhood. That's not a made-up story. We really did have a, ma a mayor. He really did give out candy. King-sized candy bars on Halloween. I never did receive a relationship with the mayor. He didn't live that far from me. I just never pursued it. Never shook his hand. Never met him formally. Never exchanged names. Never asked him how he's doing. Never asked him, would it be okay if I prayed for you since you're the mayor of my city? Never took advantage of the opportunity that was just really just a few doors down from me and my family and our house. I got what I wanted. I wanted king-size candy bars for my kid. Got that. But I never did receive a right relationship with him. I knew about him. I knew of the mayor. But I didn't know the mayor. There's a big difference. 
I would hope you would leave today knowing that there's a difference at times with how you respond to Jesus Christ. You might be in the room this morning and you know about Jesus, heard about him for a very long time. You know of him, but you don't know him. There might even be a situation where you've, you came to Christ some number of years ago. There was, there was a definite conversion, and you were accelerating for a period of time, but you know what? It's been a while since you ducked into a church or read his word. It's just, it's been a while. I don't want you to just simply know about Jesus. I want you to know him in a, relationships that, a relationship that's deep and real and life-changing. Jesus came here to live a perfect life, die on a cross, rise from the dead, not so you could know about him, but so that you could know him as your Savior and as your Lord. Good starting point is what I was trying to lead you to embrace, and I'm just going to be full out blunt about it now. Some of you need to ask Jesus Christ into your life to be your Savior and your Lord. Never done that before. And you heard me pray, and you, you were drawn to that, didn't quite pull the trigger. I want you to do that this morning. Jesus can be your Savior and your Lord. For others of you, recognize, and we're going to see this time and again as we go through the Gospel of John. He's not presenting you Jesus as Savior, and maybe you could take him as your Lord if you want. Jesus is Savior, Lord, King. And yes, he wants to call the shots in your life because he's wiser than you. So I ask you this morning, where do you stand with Jesus? Have you received him? Have you rejected him? Do you follow him? None of those questions I can answer, but you can. Where do you stand with Jesus Christ. Please know that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done to win your trust. Left the glory of heaven, lived here, died on a cross, a shameful death, so that he could make you this offer. Savior, Lord, King. There's nothing more that Jesus needs to do. You might be thinking, well, I got this problem. I have this situation. I've got this relationship. If God would just come through for me, there's nothing more than Jesus, Jesus needs to do, than what he has already done. He's purchased for you life abundant and life eternal. It's yours for the asking if you respond to Jesus and not reject him.